0: Who is really in control? Who is really in control? We would like to say we are in control. After all, the effort for control starts right after we are born. As we engage in the power struggle of trying to control the portion of this world in which we live. Oh, it starts out innocent enough... A little babe cries because they're hungry. Because they need their diaper changed. And they want mom or dad to come over and help them. I think when they become 1 year old, they're more interested in figuring out how to move. Going from rolling around to crawling, to cruising, you know, along the furniture, and finally walking. So they don't really want to assert their will too much. Plus, they haven't really sorted out any English phrases or commands yet. So they're kind of in that supervision or or observation mode, trying to learn and understand so that they can put more tools in their tool belt to secure their autonomy when they grow to the ripe old age of two or three. (laughs) Once they get to that age, uh, they seem to have learned enough to make some, sort, some short but effective sentences and some commands like mine, no, I want. Any of these sound familiar? <laughs> the toddler may have learned that extra volume also helps in crying or shouting to try and control those around you to get what you want. Can I then get my siblings or playmates to play my way, or will they control me to play their way? As I grow older, can I control others to fulfill my agenda? Or am I being managed or even compelled by them to fulfill their agenda? Can I control situations and circumstances in order to control the lives of others? game continues to be played no matter how old we get, doesn't it? Who is really in control? Our text this morning looks at the rise of Jacob's Jacob's son Joseph to power in Egypt, which is our lesson regarding who is really in control. And I'm not going to read the whole text because it's lengthy, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 41, it's verses 1 through 43. You can peruse through this while I'm I'm proclaiming this word and developing the text. But the gist of it is that God has given the the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, a dream. And in this dream, he is shown, he's standing beside the Nile River, which is a fertile area, and he sees seven fat and sleek cows. There's Iowa State Fair grand champion quality cattle out there, okay? They're beautiful. And he also see and they're grazing and and they're just doing their thing. And then seven scrawny, you know, runt cows look, looking like they came from the Sahara in Africa are there also. They're skinny and lean and and they just look sickly. And as he's watching, he sees the seven lean cows devour the seven sleek and fat cows, and then he wakes up. Then another dream is given to him. There's a stock of grain with seven heads on it, fat and full and with many kernels. And the same kind of principle. There's seven, a stock with seven lean heads of grain on it that have very little at all as far as fruit. And the, the stock with the seven lean grains eats the stock with the seven fruitful and full grains, and then he wakes up. As you read further down the story, what you realize is that after the seven lean cows devour the seven fat and healthy cows, they're still lean, they're still ugly, they're still sickly. As Pharaoh says, I've never seen such horrible-looking cattle in all of Egypt. And the same principle applies to those seven the stock with the seven grains of uh, lean grains on it. It eats and devours the seven fat grains or fruitful grains, and it's still lean. It's still uh, slim pickings. And Pharaoh doesn't understand it. He's familiar with the figures, with the images, but he doesn't understand what God is trying to tell him. And so the issue is about who is in control. So I want you to follow along, but let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his counsel as we work through this message together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, instruct our hearts now as we are gathered here to feed upon your word, which provides the rich bounty of blessing to us through understanding enabled by your spirit. Speak through me as your servant, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is in control? Well, it starts with understanding. The one who, is, who understands is the one who is in control. I still remember my wife and I going to Ecuador, and we were going through uh, the checkpoint in the airport, and one of the pastors who had, was kind of in charge of their group Wanted to lead us through, but they all speak Spanish there, and he didn't understand any Spanish. So he thought he could just get us through by talking English, and he started going through the line. And in in Ecuador, those guys have guns. They have people with with, uh, M16s or the equivalent. And the guy didn't understand, with the M16, didn't understand what this pastor was saying. In English. And as he was trying to force his way through, the guy with the gun pointed it in his chest and told him to back off in Spanish. My wife understands Spanish. And because she understood Spanish, she understood what the guard was saying to him. And I asked this pastor, Would you like my wife, who speaks Spanish fluently, to intervene? And he obviously said yes. (laughs) And she, she, softened the situation and got us through. She was the one who was really in control because she understood. She understood the language. She understood how to communicate with this guard to settle the situation down and allow us to pass. Control begins with understanding. It would be a mistake for us as human beings... Uh, to think that we are the only ones who can communicate on the planet—all creatures, from tiny insects to massive whales, can communicate with each other, uh, whether it be through chemical or tactile cues, visual sound cues, visual and sound cues, and vocal patterns, along with other types of signals. The question is not about communication. The question is about understanding. What do insects understand? What do whales understand and all the creatures in between? What do humans then understand? For humans, it is not simply that we have some understanding like the rest of creation, but what we are capable of understanding. Our understanding surpasses that of all creation here on this earth. A man does not look at a rock or a tree and and rationalize in his mind that because this is not food, I don't want to have anything to do with it. The man looks at the rock or the tree and and asks himself, how can I use this? How can I use this to my advantage or to others' disadvantage, if you will? You think about uh, unleashing the virus. That's using something to other people's disadvantage, something where we probably should not have trodden in gain-of-function research. But here we have this issue of a man looks at the materials of this world and asks, how can I use this? The more we understand, the more we can use the materials of this world to our advantage. If you were to set the average-sized man against a lion or a tiger or uh, an average-sized bear or a gorilla, who do you think would win? Who do you think would win in that contest? my money would be on the beast yet man has been given dominion over all creation why it's not because of our physical strength it's because god has given us dominion through greater understanding if you have your bibles turn uh, look in verses 1 through 16 this is what it, this is on display here in genesis 41 Verses one through sixteen God gives Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, a dream. The Pharaoh was standing by the Nile. I kind of highlighted it, look at it here in the text. The Pharaoh was standing by the Nile River when one of the river went out of the river, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank, and the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. Same thing uh, going on after that. God gives Pharaoh a second dream, beginning in verse 5. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin uh, heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full grains. And then Pharaoh woke up. He noticed that it had been a dream. Uh, Like I said, the Pharaoh is familiar with the symbols here of cows, grain, and the Nile River. But again, he doesn't understand what God is trying to communicate to him. So he tells his dream to his wise men and magicians, his counselors. They listen to him, and they can't figure it out either. They don't understand, knowing that if they get it wrong, (laughs) their lives are on the line. But they don't understand what this dream means. Then the chief cupbearer uh, to Pharaoh remembered Joseph, who rightly interpreted his dream and the baker's dream, and commended uh, Joseph to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh summons Joseph and says to him in verse 15, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, does Joseph respond by saying, why, sure I can. Let me have it. Lay it on me, Pharaoh. I can figure this out. Is is that what he said? No way. Look at verse 16. Joseph is literally saying, the answer is not in me. The understanding for this answer does not reside in me. It comes from God. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph is saying here that God will grant you understanding regarding your dream. But God is the one who will do it. Not me. I'm just his vessel. So Joseph is saying God controls understanding as God is the source of all wisdom. Look at and uh, let's look at a New Testament example for for just a moment. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter three. I know this is a familiar passage, but uh, just consider this for a second. Uh, Jesus has a dialogue in John three with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who is a teacher of Israel and a member of the ruling class, uh, regarding the Jewish Council. In verse two. Uh, Verse 2, this man Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we know in the, in the sense that we understand that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miracles, miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. How does Jesus respond? He says, no, you don't understand. You don't understand who I am. You don't understand what my kingdom is. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. I mean, he's born of the Spirit, born of God's provision through the Spirit. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless God gives you that understanding, unless God opens your eyes. So you must be transformed through the Holy Spirit's work of renewing your mind even your soul. In Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus asks His disciples, Who do you say that I am? What do you understand about me? Peter responds, without hesitation, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How does Jesus respond to that? Lucky guess? No, He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Notice the word, Blessed, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, by man's wisdom, philosophical cunning, but by my Father in heaven. Is this not the blessing promised to all who read and hear and take to heart the testimony of the risen Christ Jesus, which comes as a prophecy through his apostle John in the book of Revelation? Revelation that this revelation comes from Christ Himself? Why do we prayerfully study God's Word and seek the Holy Spirit's counsel? Because understanding is a blessing from God. Understanding is a blessing from God. The truth sets you free from the shackles of ignorance and vanity. Regarding the godless who suppress the truth about God, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, that their thinking, that which they understand, becomes futile. And their foolish hearts are darkened. It's an image of a dungeon. You are trapped in a prison. And whatever light you see through that little crack, that little crevice, in the wall up above that comes from the sun. You think you see it all. You think you understand everything. And you are bound in ignorance because you do not have the wisdom and counsel of the Lord. On the other hand, Jesus says to a simple fisherman, Blessed are you, Simon, for this understanding was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. This reveals God's sovereign control of understanding, which is connected to his sovereign control of his creation, revealed most clearly in the courses of his creation. By courses, I'm speaking of all the dynamic activities on this planet uh, and in the heavens that God controls. In Genesis 41, verses 17 through 32, Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams about the seven cows and the seven stalks of grain that I've already gone, gone through with you. In verse 28, Joseph says, It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. He's not leaving the Pharaoh in ignorance. But this just isn't, this isn't for Pharaoh's benefit. This is God's co- committed faithfulness to his servant Israel, to Jacob and to Joseph, to his people, through whom he's going to preserve. You know, if, if God just provided food for Jacob, they, they were a small clan at that time, a small group of people. Egypt was a massive nation, military and a military might in those days. And if, and if God just would have blessed Jacob, there would have been marauders, there would have been people coming in from all, of, all over the world trying to take that food from them because they were all starving. And when you're starving and you're desperate, you, de- you do desperate things. And it's, it's most likely that they would not be able to hold on to what God had blessed them with. But placing them within the context of Egypt and giving them favor in the eyes of the Pharaoh, they are not only blessed to have continued provision so that they remain alive and, and continue, can continue to be the lineage through which God blesses this world, but they can also be preserved. And, and, and enemies did try in that time to, to, to... Marauders came in trying to steal grain and steal uh, things from Egypt, but Egypt was able to fight them off. And they set up a secure system. So not only those people in Egypt and, and the clan of Israel, but also others who came in could actually have food and survive. God used it as a blessing to many people. So verse 28, Joseph said, "Is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. He has given you understanding of what what is going on, and this is what God is going to do through the courses and, and events of what's coming up. Verses 29 through 32, he explains it. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten. Note that. And the, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. It's emphatic when it, there's one followed by another. Uh, and God will do it soon. Well, you see the timely, material importance of Joseph explaining this dream. Do you understand the spiritual significance of what is being presented here? Do you see this? Do you understand this spiritually what is being presented here in this dream? You know, when when God does things, He does things for short term and long term. That's why when you look at prophecy, there are often short term prophecies that can accentuate and verify the long-term prophecies. We have the, the material, the historical here, but it points towards a greater spiritual teaching. Do you understand what that spiritual teaching is? The spiritual significance of this dream is tied to Jesus' encouragement to us in the book of Revelation. Revelation. We remember from all the sevens in Revelation that the number seven in the Bible means what? Perfection and completeness. Perfection and completeness. The key verse here is from, from Genesis 41 is verse 31. The abundance in the land will not be remembered. Remembrance is a very important word in the Bible. When, when Jesus is on the cross... The thief to his right said, Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He had no hope at all. He was guilty before God. The only hope he had was the person next to him, Jesus Christ, his Savior. Remember me. Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Meaning, I will remember you. Will God remember who you and I are when we stand before Him in judgment? Are we remembered as His people, bought by the blood of His Son? The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe The blessing God has bestowed has run its course and because the famine is so severe the blessing is remembered no more. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. This is a story, an illustration Jesus uses of a rich man who had everything and a very, very impoverished man whose name was Lazarus. And if you know The etymology of that name, you will know that that means God helps me. Lazarus is translated as God is my helper. And yet in this story, Jesus starts off by saying a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen lived in luxury every day. This rich man had everything at his disposal, He lived a comfortable, enjoyable life from worldly standards. In contrast is Lazarus, who is a beggar covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table as waste. But Lazarus received nothing from this man. Before I go on, I want you to understand that this is been the parity between Christianity and those who are worldly. Those who are in the world say, mine, I want. No. Well, many Christians are suffering, saying, your will be done, not mine. That's the parody here. The rich man has everything, and he could easily help those in need. I'm I'm reminded that even in the days in which we live, if if there were, uh, if if God's law governed the whole world and we were gracious, there'd be enough food to feed everybody on this planet. That's not the way it is, is it? And that's why Jesus says, "The poor you will have with you will always." That will not change until there's a change of the guard until I come back. The rich desire the wealth and resources and pleasures of this world, and they will fight for it it, as much as they can. But as followers of Christ Jesus, we are called to honor him and to live for him. And oftentimes that means sacrifice. Oftentimes that means humbling ourselves, even denying ourselves that we may follow Christ and and show forth his love to those around us. It is a challenging parody, but that's what's presented in this passage. And yet, when you look at it, it seems all wrong. Why is this rich man, at least he should show a little hospitality. At least he should take a few of the breadcrumbs and maybe scoop them up in a dustpan and hand them over to Lazarus so he has at least a little bit of a morsel to eat. But he wouldn't even do that. He just let him die right out there on the front porch. Well, the time came for both of them to die. Remember the famine and the feast, right? The time of blessing, great produce, and the time of nothing at all, of famine. You have here seven being the number of completeness. It shows a cycle, and it represents a cycle of your life. As you live in this world, you will live for a season of time, and when that season is over, you will stand before the Lord to be judged. If it is appointed a man once to die, then what? The judgment. What did you do with what God has given you? Did you receive salvation from his son Jesus Christ? Is God your helper? Is your faith in him to justify you? As Paul says in Romans 1 very clearly, the just shall live by faith. As we stand before God, we are either justified through faith in Christ Jesus and His finished work on the cross for us, or we are standing before God in our own righteousness thinking that we can somehow appease Him from our sinful nature. When your your life has run its course, what will be your situation before God? The rich man... His, his wealth did not transfer with him. And it's, it's ironic when you look at a lot of religions, especially those who are wealthy, they try and gather as much wealth as they can for their burial site, thinking that that wealth is going to transfer with them into the afterlife. But what Jesus is saying quite plainly here is if you're using that wealth and resources for your own glory, And that's all you're seeking after is your own wealth, your own power, the desires of your flesh in this world. You may have it. You may enjoy a lot of money. You may enjoy a a nice home and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with money and having a home and having a nice car and stuff like that. But if that is your focus, if that is your God that you worship, then that is your reward here in this world. And it will not transfer to what comes after And all that you've gained in this world will be remembered no more. Jesus says, if you gain the whole world, if you can can work and labor to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul, so that all that you gain when you stand before the Lord of glory, He says, okay, I'm going to take it and wipe it away. What have you profited? What have you gained? Nothing. And yet here is this man Lazarus, this beggar, who puts his faith in God, whose God God is his helper. And he is ushered up by the angels. He lived a very difficult life in this world. As many Christians have been persecuted and struggled and lived very hard lives in this world. But he is carried up to Abraham by the angels, and placed at Abraham's right side, showing true fellowship through faith in God. And the rich man is in torment. He wants, he wants Abraham to tell Lazarus to dip his finger in some water so that he could put a few drops on his tongue to provide just a little bit of comfort as he is tormented in the fires of hell. You know what Abraham said? There's a chasm and it can't be crossed. In your day, you had your good things. Now you have your just rewards for how you use them. And Lazarus had his bad things. He had his famine in this world. But now he is feasting with the Lord. Do you see it? Joseph says the abundance will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. Again, those who strive for wealth and power in this world along with sinful pleasures they pursue may gain that wealth. They may gain that wealth and power and enjoy those pleasures throughout the course of this life. But if you forsake God's help through Jesus Christ who was sent to save you, whatever riches and strength and pleasure you once knew will be forgotten because what follows will be so severe. The third verse of the hymn, This is My Father's World, says, This is my Father's world, O let me not forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be won. In Genesis 41, verses 33 through 43, what do you see? We see that God controls the authorities of this world. From that verse, that's sometimes hard to see, but God does. In these verses, Joseph explains to the Pharaoh how he should address what is going to happen with the seven bountiful years of harvest followed by the seven years of famine. How does the Pharaoh respond? Look at verses 39 through 40. Since God has made all this known to you, since you are the one who understands, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph was a slave. God exalted him to be the ruler of all Egypt. And in this case, Joseph foreshadows Jesus Christ. as there is no one who understands what God the Father is doing better than the Son. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about, the supremacy of the Son. In these verses, Pharaoh recognizes that God has given Joseph this understanding of what God himself is going to do, and thus places Joseph in charge of all of Egypt even the Pharaoh's palace. God is the one who is in charge of the authorities of this world, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like it. I mentioned the last verse of This is My Father's World so that we may be reminded when we look at our world and it doesn't seem like God is in control, that He is. Public Doors is a Christian ministry that takes note of the suffering of Christians throughout the world. Uh, The 2022 watch list uh, came out recently and was published by Christianity Today. It states that every day an average of 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked and every day 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Yet, the Christianity Today article continues you might think that this is all about oppression, but the list is really about resilience and faith. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying. That Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another during these hard times. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The listed nations on the watch list contain 309 million Christians living in places with very high or extreme levels of persecution, but that is up from 260 million last year. God is in control. God is in control. From from life's first cry, to establish control to my final breath where I must relinquish it. Jesus controls, commands my destiny. Is your faith in him? Is your faith in Jesus today? Because he is the one who is truly in control. And you will see him someday either as judge or as Savior. Who is he to you today?